Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 54th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Mike Phillips, CEO and co-founder of Sense. Mike is a serial entrepreneur and a pioneer in speech recognition technology. What was so interesting about my interview with Mike is the fact that it's basically a history lesson through the evolution of speech recognition, which is a very difficult and complex technology to build. After years and years, it is technology that we now take for granted with things like Siri, Alexa, and OK Google. After spending time in research at Carnegie Mellon and MIT, Mike co-founded SpeechWorks, a company that created software that allowed you to interact with an automated attendant and call centers in a very natural way, which was groundbreaking technology at the time. Mike went on to be a co-founder of Volingo, which often was referred to as Siri for Android, and it helped make consumer adoption of this form of technology a reality. Today, Mike is doing something completely new with Sense, which is making our home smarter with their intelligent home energy monitor. The company has raised a total of $38.6 million in funding, including an $18 million Series B round of funding back in October. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Mike's background and how his interest in electronics started at a very young age, the details on the early research projects he was working on at Carnegie Mellon and MIT, building speech works to the point of going public and their evolution of the company through mergers and acquisitions to eventually becoming known as Nuance, how he was able to convince investors that mobile was the next frontier for speech recognition, which led to Volingo and was acquired for $225 million, the vision for Sense and how they're letting consumers know what is going on in their homes, all while making them safer, more efficient, and more reliable, plus lots and lots of great advice for entrepreneurs. Okay, quick side note. Competing in this market for talent is very challenging. The good news is that VentureFizz can help. Our biz pages are a comprehensive employment branding and hiring solution to help you engage with the most targeted audience in the tech industry. Send an email to premium at VentureFizz.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mike. Mike, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. All right, Mike. So we have a lot to talk about. You've done a lot in your career. So I'm just going to dive right in. Um, I always like to kind of go a little bit, I guess, into the history of somebody as far as, you know, where, where did you actually grow up and, and what did your parents do for work? Yeah, so I was actually born in California, but we moved to uh, South Carolina when I was seven. Uh, my my dad was a math professor uh, teaching at, at, at University of South Carolina. And my, ah. my mom was part-time bank teller and accountant and uh, helping support the family. So did you live in, is it Columbia, South Carolina, where the South, University of South Carolina is? First Columbia, and then we moved to the small town of Aiken, South Carolina. And then you ended up at Carnegie Mellon. So, like, so why did you decide to uh, attend school there? Yeah, well, so like when I was growing up, you know, I sort of got into electronics in various ways. You know, my, you know, when the TV would break, uh, you know, uh, my dad would be in there fixing it and we were all helping out. And so I kind of learned at an early age that you could just dive into the stuff and 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 figure things out. And then like a little bit later on, my our piano needed to be tuned and I figured out how to tune it, but I, I wasn't that good at it. So then I figured, hey, I'll make myself an electronic piano tuner. And, you know, this was before the internet days, so you, it was a lot of work to figure out how to make an electronic piano tuner, but, but that's what I did. And then I, I spent my summer tuning people's pianos, maybe not that well, but I, <laughs> I still did that. So kind of got into electronics from that world and, and started to learn about computers. 
still in high school. Like this is the mid 1970s where this wasn't a thing yet, but uh, actually built my own very minimalist kind of computer based on the first uh, microprocessors in the in the the 8080 processor I built back in the mid 70s and finally got it to work. So, you know, it's partly a lesson about if you just work hard at stuff, you can eventually figure it out. So that, that's kind of got me in the electronics world. And then I decided I wanted to go to school doing electrical engineering and looked around and ended up at Carnegie Mellon. And how did you get the parts to build your computer? <laughs> oh, well, again, it was hard. There's no internet. Yeah. You know, part of it is we find old broken stuff and take the parts out of the old broken stuff to make the new stuff. And then occasionally you'd send off some mail order thing and wait, wait anxiously for your <laughs> resistors to come in the mail, you know? That's so cool. So now at Carnegie Mellon, you're an electrical engineering uh, uh, major. So what was the path that kind of brought you down this uh, you know, you ended up like starting to focus on speech recognition. So how did that all come about? Like, was it in school that you started to understand kind of what was going on in this world? Or was it, you know, once you graduated and then, uh, you know, started as a research scientist at MIT? Well, no, even as an undergrad at, at, at Carnegie Mellon, I, I wanted to get involved in, in research. So I, I got I got plugged in with a professor, uh, Dr. Richard Stern, doing uh, work on uh, auditory processing. This was trying to understand how brains do uh, localization of audio signals. So working with him on experiments and simulations, doing this kind of really basic uh, science research on auditory processing. But, but then I, I also had this feeling like, this is great, but I, 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 it was just too academic. It was too far away from reality. And, and then the, the group was starting to start a speech recognition effort or a new speech recognition effort. So got, got connected to that in their early days. This was DARPA-funded uh, work on speech recognition in the early 1980s at Carnegie Mellon. For, for what purpose? Okay, so early 80s, like what What was DARPA trying to do with speech recognition? Well, you know, they, they had uh, vague ideas that could eventually be useful for something. But, you know, the tasks we were working on were were just so far removed from, from, from anything real. I mean, you got to realize back then, you know, speech recognition, if you could make it recognize a couple words was was awesome. So we actually had a task. We were supposed to recognize vocabulary of a thousand words, and it just seemed so far out of reach. I mean, we, it just didn't seem like it was possible, and we just plugged away at it. And for many years, it was impossible. And then finally, we started to make progress years later. And then was it, um, did you discover the research going on at MIT that brought you there, or they discover you? Or Yeah. So uh, in the, in the, uh, mid 80s actually I, I met my future wife uh, she was at MIT so I actually had moved oh. to, to to MIT to 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 join the group there I joined there as a research scientist okay. uh, moving from Pittsburgh to Boston so that was a, a nice change of lifestyle and being in Boston has been great ever since so you're working part of this uh, team called uh, well you developed something called Voyager what was that yeah so um you know, the person leading the group, uh, Victor Zhu at MIT, had had this really interesting insight. Most people are working on speech recognition, which is a hard and unsolved problem. There was other people working on natural language processing, which was a equally hard and unsolved problem. So he had this crazy idea. Let's take these two hard and unsolved problems and combine them, right? <laughs> right. So speech recognition plus natural language processing, which maybe seems crazy. Why would you do that? Mm -hmm. But it actually then opened up all these new avenues of research to take to not view those in isolation, but realize the real job was to go from people saying stuff and then trying to do something useful based on it that in included not only speech to words or 
acoustic signals to words, but words to meaning what do people actually mean. So we we, we did that and it really launched a, a kind of a, a very interesting avenue of research that hadn't been done before um, and resulted in some early systems. One was called Voyager, uh, where you, know, you, you could go to this and in a lot of ways, it's similar to what we have today on mobile phones, where you could say, uh, where's the nearest restaurant? And it would come back and say, where are you? And you'd say MIT, and then it'd give you the closest restaurant to, to MIT. Um, there were some problems, though. Like one thing is you would speak something to it. First of all, it ran on a computer that cost like $100,000 and was the size of a washing machine. <laughs> right. And, and you would say something. You'd say, where's the nearest restaurant? You'd have to wait 20 minutes before it came back and said, well, where are you? So... You know, <laughs> but when that first happened, you must be like, this is working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was super exciting. You know, we were making videos and touring around talking about it. I, I even, uh, Victor and I, Victor Zhu and I actually presented at the uh, uh, the the uh, early days of the Apple board of directors talking to them about this stuff, like really? way back in the 1980s. Yeah. So that obviously included Steve Jobs and Woz. And... It's actually at the time period when Steve Jobs had already left. So it was, ah, okay. Uh, so yeah got it very cool very cool uh so obviously you made some major headway in terms of this research to the point where you decided to license the technology from mit and actually go and commercialize and, and build a company yeah so again progressing on the uh, uh uh frustration with doing academic work and starting to do more more real things even this was you know, you work hard and, and publish some papers and the best case is someone reads your paper and maybe cites it or something like that. But, mm. you know, I really had a, a big desire to move into doing something real. So uh, in 1994, I left MIT and started a company called SpeechWorks. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, I had no clue about starting companies and, and had no idea whether it would work out. But I, I figured, look, I could either go get a job or I could start a company. And well, I'll tell you what, I'll start the company first. And if that doesn't work out, I'll go get a job. Yeah, because I'm sure you're like, okay, I could either go back to research if it doesn't work out, or I could, you know, find employment with my technical skills somewhere else. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You actually, it's bringing me back. So my first computer was a Texas Instruments TI 994A, and this was probably late 80s. And I remember one of the video games, it had, you know, voice recognition. So if you're playing baseball, you could say, throw the ball, you know, first base, and it would throw it. And I'm like, this is amazing. It was awesome. So I don't know. You're just bringing me date, like back to the to my childhood here with this early adoption of speech recognition. Yeah, there were some, some early fun things that they didn't work very well, but it was. Uh... <laughs> well, I think it was Milton Bradley that was the you know the you know the the gaming company that they probably didn't you know invent the speech recognition part, but they OEM'd it into their gaming console of what I had to buy to actually play that game. But um, so what was the, the the first you know as you you know started building your you know speech works what. Um, what what was the problem that you were trying to solve? Like, how are you trying to actually leverage this technology to solve a problem? Well, so, so realize, I mean, the, the state of the technology at the time was that it worked in the lab in very careful circumstances. You know, this Voyager thing I talked to you about, not only did it take 20 minutes, but you had to say the right stuff to it. It had to be a quiet environment and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, we had lab systems that worked back then, but still a long way away from working in the real world. So really the challenge was how do you find a, both a market and a problem space where you could make this work for real in the real world. Um, and we quickly gravitated to the call center space. So, you know, at the time, there were automated systems, but they were mainly you have to push the buttons on the phone in order to interact with them. Press one for this, press two for that. There was some speech recognition, but it was, it turned it into 
press or say one, press or say two. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so those were basically the state of the art of what was deployed at the time. And we realized we could go much further than that and let people uh, basically speak whatever they want to have these call center systems that that first were, you know, describe the problem or, you know, speak in, in real natural ways, the things you wanted to do. And how did you fund this initially? Yeah. So again, remember, I knew nothing about starting companies then. Right. <laughs> uh, fortunately, there's a whole uh, network of people around at MIT that did. Mm -hmm. So I, I spent my first little while just uh, hanging around the, the MIT uh, startup uh, world and then quickly got connected to uh, a co-founder with me who had started companies before. He had done a couple of software startups before, and he was already plugged into the venture capital space. So, uh, you know, we, we raised some initial money, I, th I think I think a few hundred thousand dollars of seed money from his friends. And then uh, about a year later, raised our first venture money. And then obviously you built a company. So in your your technology was used by major corporation, right? Yeah. yeah. So we um, I, I mean, it really was this interesting project progression of going from a couple of us sitting in the room, not really knowing what we're doing to. To incremental progress from that to you know raising money to building first products and demos and so on, and then starting to get first deals and contracts and and basically we were doubling or tripling every year and you know you just compound that out and you know by by year two thousand we were about sixty million a year in revenue we had four hundred people in downtown Boston and then uh, this was at the very tail end of the dot com uh, boom and we we went public at the so we had an IPO. Uh, we had one major competitor, a, a West Coast company called Nuance. We can come back to that in a few minutes. But mm -hmm. uh, Speechworks and Nuance were basically had split the market for call center-based speech recognition. So throughout the world, we were we were splitting that market. Uh, they went public first. We went public uh, after them in uh, August of 2000, which, if if you remember, was the very tail end of the dot-com era, right before it fully crashed. Um, so, you know, we then had to survive the tech downturn. There was a very tough period after that mm -hmm. where, you know, our, our customers were, were airlines, banks, and financial institutions building call center applications, and, and they all, you know, had big changes to their business. So it, it was a tough period. Our, um, we were able to keep our revenue almost flat, though. Our, our revenue went down by maybe 15% and then stayed flat for a couple of years. Uh, many other companies at the time, uh, you know, went down by 90% and went away. Yeah. I mean, you had a real technology of the yeah, real we have. I'm sure these were multi-year or you know major contracts that you couldn't just evaporate the revenue. That's right. And and you know, the, there was an interesting dynamic that we were kind of selling kind of more real stuff. We had a professional services group that would go and do consulting. And Nuance, our West Coast competitor, was a little bit more flashy selling to the latest uh, internet startup. So they got hurt worse than we did in the in the downturn. We were able to stay more stable than they were after the downturn. But there was one little fun side product, I guess. That you, so you guys were working with AOL and were actually uh, working with them for voice enabled email. Yeah. So in fact, uh, uh, again, this was the early days. Yeah, two thousand, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy how like advanced. This technology, like the technology we're working on, is so advanced. We take it for granted now because it's just kind of in your iPhone. But back then, it was just like you—you. You, this is groundbreaking. Like people are like, "You're kidding! I can't. Yeah. Like I can actually listen to my email now." Yeah, it, we even had a product called the Voice Portal. This was when uh, internet portals were becoming very popular. So we were 
we were starting to make uh, for call centers this voice portal where it'd be like the the voice uh, uh, front page for your for your business that could people could navigate from. Uh, frankly, that didn't really ever take off as a concept, but it was. Uh, <laughs> you now this was when when we were all trying to figure this stuff out. Okay, so then there was this progression of your company. So then uh, you SpeechWorks and ScanSoft merged together, right? That, like, I just want to make sure, I, or the you're acquired by ScanSoft, if if that's correct. Yeah, I mean, so so this was again after the the tough uh, tech downturn, or, or after the tech downturn happened, it was very clear to us that there needed to be some market consolidation, uh, and there really became three. Then SpeechWorks and Nuance were mainly splitting the market, and then ScanSoft, who had previously been in the OCR business, decided to start to get into the speech recognition business. They bought the bankrupt remains of Lernout and Houseby, who had bought Dragon and the Philips speech processing parts. That was all together at ScanSoft. And so then there were three major players, and we really realized that there was a, a need for consolidation. And, and something that was never really wi widely known is as SpeechWorks and Nuance came very close to merging uh, uh, first, and then that deal fell through. And then we we actually sought out the the, the folks at ScanSoft and were open to to to, to uh, merging with them. So they acquired us, um, and you know the, we then became a big, pretty big chunk of of what was then called uh, ScanSoft. So I, I was the CTO there for a couple of years. We we bought like ten more companies while I was there, including Nuance in two thousand five, and changed the name of the company to Nuance. So so I, I think that's important. It's confusing because of the name, but the reality is it was ScanSoft that basically pulled together all these different pieces of the speech recognition market and consolidated it into to one company. So as like a, like a, I like to just kind of talk about you know the foundation of you know speech recognition and the evolution. So this is two thousand and five. What what was the state then? Like I mean, you had all these products under your umbrella with corporations using using speech recognition. I would imagine uh, healthcare, like doctors were probably starting to become, you know, using this technology. Um, and then, you know, you had more of the consumerish, you know, dragon speaking, like all this whole portfolio. So what was the state of speech recognition at that, at that point? Yeah. I mean, you're right that there, there were these kind of three major chunks around call center based applications where the uh, speech works and nuance had come from uh, healthcare processing you know, transcription for healthcare was a very big market. And I think still is a pretty important market. Mm -hmm. And then Dragon as a dictation on computers. Those were the three main chunks. There's some other ones around how this fits into automotive. You know, there was starting to be some speech recognition in automotive systems and so on. Mm -hmm. And also starting to be speech recognition in mobile phones. But, you know, it was mainly just voice dialing fully built into mobile phones. And by the way, that, that leads a little bit to, to my transition next because I, this was 2005. I wanted to do something more consumer centric. And it, it, there was a, this interesting transition happening with phones that they were, you know, 2005, they were still mainly just feature phones and Blackberries. But we saw that they were all getting connected to data networks. And once they started to get connected to data networks, we thought two things would happen. One is that it would become people's, you know, personal information, entertainment, communication devices. That's what we, that's the terminology we use wow. back then, right? <laughs> And look, we like the iPhone launch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, but I, you know, we were not only ones thinking about this. It was kind of clear that that's the direction that these things were, were going as they had more and more processing, memory, data capabilities, and so on. And then the other is, 
again, this was before iPhone and touchscreens. Our view was you shouldn't have to type on little keyboards. You should be able to speak to them. So okay. it seemed to me and a few others that this was the place where speech recognition would become a mainstream consumer product first. And, and I also felt I wanted to do that in a startup. So I, so I left uh, uh, Scansoft Nuance in 2005, uh, spent another a year at MIT, partly uh, because it was a good place to be and partly because I had a non-compete I got to work through. So it was, I, I spent my non-compete year at, as a visiting scientist at MIT. And then 2006 started a company called Flingo, which was meant to capitalize on this, this future of what mobile phones should be. Um, I mean, the other thing I, I, I didn't mention that's important to note is we realized we could make use of the architectural change due to the data networks. And instead of trying to cram all the processing into the mobile phone, that we could make use of the data network and put a little bit of processing in the phone and then put the bulk of the processing server side. And by the way, this is before cloud was a thing, right? right. Uh, we had to build our own data net, our, our, our data uh, centers for doing this, but it allowed us to do large vocabulary, uh, uh, AI, machine learning, and hook into all sorts of content to do the first virtual assistant um, that was called Lingo. So, I mean, you just talked about everything that's very current in today's terminology. So this is so cutting edge, right? This virtual personal assistant. And I was wondering, like, just the pure speech recognition piece at that point, it must have been uh, at a point where... Um, you know, it wasn't like frustrating for consumers where it'd be like, oh, it didn't understand me, right? It must have been at a point where, okay, consumers can do this and it's going to understand any person speaking to it. Well, not quite. <laughs> so, in fact, <laughs> at the time, speech recognition was either um, kind of very constrained, you know, here's a list of a thousand words. As long as you say one of those thousand words, you're good. Uh, but if you say something outside of it, didn't know what you, you were saying, mm -hmm. or we would call them grammar-based systems. We would do natural language processing. And even in the Voyager stuff from MIT, there was a grammar behind it that as long as you said it in a way that the machine was expecting, everything was fine. But as soon as you stepped outside of even the pattern of words, it would fall apart. So, so the, 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 the new notion we had was to take kind of what had been developed in the dictation world, which was use these very big statistical models that would basically let you say whatever you want. And then and then more statistically based uh, natural language processing, which, which is much more forgiving than these grammar-based systems and do that on mobile phones. And, and just to be clear, these things didn't work quite well enough. In fact, when we were out there talking to people, they thought we were crazy. I, I mean, really, the, the, even the people deep into speech, have been doing speech recognition for 20 years, Back then, if you asked them whether this was possible, they'd say, no, you know, this guy, Mike, he's just gone off his rocker now. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what's wrong with him. He's, he's going to fail. Right. Uh, hopefully it won't bring us down with him, right? And, and that was kind of right at the time, but we saw the, the, the direction things were going and just worked, and worked, worked and worked on it. And, of course, part of the answer was as we had more and more processing and more and more data, that really was the solution to, to this, that, that it, it required this huge amount of you know, exponential increase in processing and data that got us over the hump there. And as you were out there like evangelizing this idea, you obviously you know, raised money for Bolingo. So like, how did you get you know, investors to believe that this, I mean, there's naysayers in the industry that are probably experts that are like, are you crazy, Mike? So uh, how did you get investors to, to say, yeah, uh, you know, we want to place a big bet was it your success previously with starting a company and having an exit? 
because um, it was Charles River Ventures and Sigma that backed you initially, right? That's right. And, you know, I guess first thing to say is, is you are right. This is hard to do. Um, and even when we funded SpeechWorks, we had a real problem at SpeechWorks because there had been a previous wave of speech recognition companies that had tried and failed. So, so the view among the venture capitalists, even back in 1994, was speech recognition doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the only way we got over that was by making demos that actually worked. And, and you know, the, the venture capitalists would actually test them themselves. <laughs> right. This isn't spoken mirrors. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's how we got over there. And for Vlingo, yeah, we were doing this very, again, most people thought it was not possible what we were trying to do. But we were really able to leverage uh, track record there. So, you know, the Charles River people had, and a great investor at Charles River had been uh, involved in SpeechWorks. So it's kind of made a big bet. And uh, uh, that was Izar Armini at, at Charles River and uh, Bob Devoli at Sigma, uh, who I, I hadn't known before, but was just a very uh, uh, intuitive and smart venture capitalist that, that saw, saw what we were doing early on and just felt in his gut that it was the right thing to do and, and, and went for it. So the question that uh, I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, Blingo became largely known as Siri for Android. But I read in the archives of the internet that there was an actual involvement of Blingo with Siri from the early days, or was that just something that I read that wasn't true? Uh, it's right, but in a fairly minimal way. So, you know, Siri was a, a, a independent startup coming out of SRI. Um, they actually thought that they were going to have to make Siri uh, with typed input. They were focusing on the natural language part and thought you'd have to type to it. Uh, that was their first view of Siri. And then they saw what we were doing at Blingo and said, oh, gee, these Blingo guys have made it so you can actually speak to it. So we did some early kind of prototypes with them where they took uh, uh, the speech recognition part of, of Blingo and pumped it into the typed part of Siri and had some early versions of that. But, you know, then they got quickly bought by Apple. And once they got bought by Apple, they moved off and they actually uh, did their own thing. They started working with the Nuance folks due to some political reasons and so on that I, I don't need to go into. But they, they, they went a different direction. But look, it was a, a great validation for us. That, I mean, there's another thing that happened around that same time period, which is, um, uh, you know, we had products out or Blingor had products out on BlackBerry and on Android. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was in that same time period. And we were starting to charge consumers for this. We had a freemium model for Android. And then uh, Google uh, put speech recognition for free into the base of Android. And, and, you know, you would have thought that, okay, that's it for Blingo. We're done now uh, just because Google's just going to suck it all up. But the exact opposite happened because, you know, we, we went from kind of this direct consumer trying to figure out the path to market to in, in, one quarter, we signed up three of the top five phone makers based on the market validation from Google because the, wow. these guys didn't, and even for their Android applications, right? Because they didn't want the entire experience owned by Google. They needed an alternative, and we were the obvious alternative out there. Got it. Okay, and because your app was preloaded on like Samsung yeah. phones, and so that's how you got adoption and mass consumer awareness of what you were doing. Th- that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then I just remember the, um, the the campaigns. Like, I mean, it's still a major problem today. Safe driving, right? So that was part of the, like the the appeal to consumers. Like, hey, you know, don't drive and text or you know write emails on your BlackBerry. It's uh, you know use Valingo to 
uh, you know, do what you got to do, but focus on your driving. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, at, at the time, especially is is when people are starting to do, you know, really get hooked on texting and people mm -hmm. were, I suppose it's still the case, but that, that's really at the beginning of when people were texting and driving and causing a real safety problem. So, you know, we were trying to do what we could to help with that. And then looking into the, like, again, you guys were like, like looking continuously into the future, right? So um, I remember seeing an ad for uh, Comcast with their voice enabled TV remote where I'm like, that is ridiculous. Why would I ever want that? They ship it all to the, I just showed up at my house one day. I didn't ask for it. I can't live without it now. Like my whole family could not actually like push buttons on the remote now because they just push the button, say what, what they want to watch. Now you were actually doing that with Volingo, right? It was like you were voice enabling TVs with your, with your technology too, right? Yeah, yeah, we were doing some initial work with some of the TV makers and some of the cable makers. I mean, you know, one thing to know, of course, is that those industries move rather slowly. Right. So uh, yeah. uh, good that they finally are, are, are now really taking advantage of it. They could have done that eight or nine years ago because mm -hmm. uh, we were ready to do it back then. But, um, but, but you know, I think that's that's one one good proof point. I mean, the other thing that and this is kind of now as as as. You know, Blingo got acquired in 2012 and kind of since then has been a really interesting trend is the smart speakers, of course. So, yes. you know, when we saw what Amazon was doing with Alexa, we thought, yeah, OK, I don't I don't really think someone's going to want a, a separate little thing in their home that they talk to. You know, we would of course, we would have loved it if that were the case. But we were skeptical about that, especially because mm -hmm. everyone had a phone in their pocket. Why would they want a separate device? So we we were, again, quite skeptical of that. but incredibly surprised and i think most people in the industry i think even the people at amazon were surprised about the the degree of consumer uptake of, of that and of course as, as you know that's that's that has become a, a really prime uh part of the the future of speech recognition what year was that launched i forget when alexa was launched you know i actually don't also remember the exact date i think it was the 2012 2013 kind of time frame okay and then ultimately, Valingo was acquired by Nuance. That's right. Uh, you know, we, we were we were not angling to be acquired by Nuance, but it was you know kind of clear that that we were we were basically winning most of the mobile phone market there, and they were um, uh, pretty pretty intent on making sure that they could continue to to supply that across the mobile phone industry. So we we had lots of drama with them, but in in the end, they they ended up buying us in 2012. And you know, one of the things that I think you know. Boston's very humble and, you know, sometimes acquisition prices aren't announced, but this was public out there. It just, I don't think it really made a lot of noise. I mean, back in, um, was it, uh, when the acquisition happened, was it 2011? It was announced in, it was announced in 2011. It didn't actually close until 2012. Okay. But it was yeah. 225 million. I mean, like granted in today's world, oh, if you don't exit for a billion, you're like, oh, nice try. But back then, I mean, that was a monster exit and a great, great return for your investors because you didn't raise, you know, the levels of, you know, funding that companies raise now. Yeah, it was absolutely a good, good path and, and good exit for the company. Okay. So now on to what you're currently up to, which is not speech recognition. Yeah. Uh, so Sense, what is what is Sense all about? Yeah, so, so after uh, Vlingo was acquired in 2012, uh, first of all, I didn't stick around. I was fairly clear, uh, even even with the, the whole even at the time that I wasn't going to stick around. <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I decided I wanted to do, 
to do another startup and decided, you know, first step was deciding, okay, not speed recognition. So, <laughs> you know, just partly because, uh, you know, I've done enough of that. Been there, done that. <laughs> and look, I, I also have a view that, um, you know, a lot of the tech in the VC world is focused on kind of a narrow set of problems, right? I, you know this. We, we see this all the time that, that once there's a some success in a, in a, a domain that there's just a piling on effect, that there's just more of that. And Scooters. You know, we need more scooters. Yeah. Or, you know, Uber for dog walking or whatever. Right. Yeah. right? So, and look, these are all valid things, but it seems like an overemphasis on the on a narrow set of things. And I, I actually think where the big opportunities are in, in tech is to take what we know from tech and in our case, consumer facing tech and apply it to other big industries. So, you know, the big industries of the world are, are what they're, you know, healthcare, manufacturing, transportation, agriculture, energy. Um, and each of those are, are, you know, in a lot of ways, very under invested from a technology perspective, um, you know, relative to the size of the market. So, and to me, again, that's where the big opportunities are. Now it's not easy because these are big, slow moving industries that are very complicated. So look, we looked kind of broadly at that and decided we wanted to focus on the energy space. Uh, plenty of other, other these other ones are perfectly valid also, but you know, energy is a super big part of the economy. It's super important from an environmental and geopolitical standpoint. Uh, and we also know that, you know, now take the part that we work on, which is since we like consumer facing applications, we decide to focus on uh, homes and residential energy use. And we know that half of the energy that people buy could be saved if they did the right things. Really? Half? Yeah, half. I mean, we're, you know, I used to say that um, in a kind of a flip way, uh, not really knowing the answer. Uh, but now that we've been into the data and we know this well, we actually are very confident that that's true and probably even an underestimate of what's possible. So, and, and you know, the, 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 the notion that we had and still a, a core part of how we think about this is, if we could know in detail what happens in a home, you know, know in detail what how energy is being used and what things are on and off, and can know uh, have a way to engage the consumers around that, we should be able to you know help them make their homes work better uh, from an energy aspect to start with. Um, but but here let, let me now broaden how we think of this because because I'll come back to the how do we know in detail what happens in the home in a moment. But the second part of how do you engage consumers. One of the things we we now know, and it's pretty obvious, is it, it has to be, be about more than just energy because energy is kind of boring for people, right? You know, even if you care about energy, either from an environmental or cost saving perspective, you're not going to take out an app three times a day and see how to see how your furnace is doing. You're just right. you're just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but what we, what we realize is once we had solved part one of how do we know in detail what's happening at home, there's a broader notion of home awareness, home intelligence. Uh, that falls into an energy component for sure, but also falls into a, you know, did I leave the oven on or is my is my sump pump running when it's raining? Otherwise, the basement will flood. Mm. Uh, so there's a, an awareness part. There's a um, safety and security part. You know, is there an arc fault in my wall that might cause my house to catch on fire? Is my furnace about to break down? Is my air conditioner leaked its refrigerant and so on? You know, your house is a big investment for for you and and it's kind of weird that you have no idea what actually, how things actually work and whether they're broken or not um, until it becomes very obvious. And then finally, you know, most of the IOT world has focused on, uh, on control. So like connected thermostats, connected light switches, 
but they don't have a broad view of what's happening in the home. And, and our view is to really make that intelligent in an intelligent home perspective, you actually have to start from the other direction of you need the data in or data about what all is happening in the home in order to drive intelligence, which is needed to drive control and automation in good ways. So, so we think we fit in that entire big space, starting from the, the sensing part, hence the name of the company. Okay. Now, I've left out how we do all this. So right. that was going to be my question. So how does this all work? How does it all work? So, uh, you know, we did set out to figure out, okay, how can we know in detail what's happening in the home? And we also know, look, if the internet of things were done, like if all devices were connected and we just tell us what they're doing, we're happy to make use of that. But we're so far away from that. In fact, when we started the company five years ago, we seemed a long way away from that. And Today, five years later, we seem about equally far away from that. There's been progress, but it's still a long way away. So we, we set out for finding a different way to know in detail what's happening in the home. We, we realize that most devices are connected to your power. And it turns out that the way they use power is slightly different. So, and this does tie back to the energy part. So, so what we do uh, now, to be clear, is we have a, a little piece of hardware. It goes inside your electrical panel. It measures the power coming into your house, uh, just like any other energy monitor, or in fact, just like what your utility meter does, except we're measuring in an, an incredibly detailed way. We're, we're measuring your power at a million times a second. So one megahertz sampling of the power coming to your house, which, which I know sounds extreme. And it, yeah, it, it wow. is, it, yeah, it is a, big, a bit extreme and probably a bit overkill. Um, but the reason we do that is, is look, what we're making use of the, is the fact that these different devices use power in your house in slightly different ways. So, you know, the, the toaster is a resistive element. So they, the current's exactly phase lined with the voltage and the incandescent light is the same, except when tungsten heats up, the tungsten filament heats up, the resistance goes up. So the first 30 milliseconds, there's this exponential decay in, in the power usage and the, the refrigerator is an inductive motor. So the, uh, the, 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 the currents of a sine wave, but phase shifted from the voltage and it's got a startup period as the motor's accelerating and so on. So I'm telling you all these, these crazy details because that is what we're making use of, that there's this very fine level of detail about how the different devices use power. And we can, to some degree, uh, figure those out just by looking at the power signatures. Um, and, and how do you like, the, and does it recommend like, hey, there, here's your opportunities to save money on your power consumption. Yeah, so those are the things that we are are building and will increasingly build on top of this. I I should mention that we've we've had to spend most of our time so far on the basics, of figuring out these device signatures. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, th- this is actually not a new idea. It's called load disaggregation. In fact, first work was done on this in the 1990s at MIT, coincidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's it's. It's good that we told this whole story because this is very much reminiscent of where speech recognition was back in the 1990s, which kind of kind of worked in the lab, but not in the real world yet. Mm-hmm. That's really where the state of this technology has been. And the other thing to know is, is in speech recognition, there were literally a couple thousand people working on this for 30 years to go from where we were back then to what we have today, which is still not perfect. So, uh, you know, there's a big hill to climb here. Now, the good news is because we know a lot of that stuff, we don't have to start over again. Mm-hmm. But we we also can't just take existing speech recognition technology and apply to this. It's There's a lot of similarities of the problem, but there's a lot of differences also. So we're, we're kind of like, you know, partway through 
how we take this incredibly rich, incredibly detailed data and do all the machine learning pattern recognition that we need to just to identify devices. And then the point that you made, which is what we're super excited about, is once we know in detail all these devices, there's so many opportunities for building intelligence about making really intelligent recommendations for you that we see that you still have uh, incandescent lights in the, in, the, in the kitchen. It's now time to get rid of them. Or your utility has a great program for demand uh, peak reduction that if you charge your car at you know, or let me automatically charge your car for you at 10 o'clock or whenever the rates are low instead of you plugging in and charging at 6 o'clock, the, there's benefits to you. So, again, it feels like we're, we're in the kind of the early stages of this, this wealth of data that's going to allow us to build all the kind of things you just mentioned. So as a consumer, you, you actually purchase the Sense device. So there's a piece of hardware that I would purchase. And then like, what's the process as far as getting that like installed? Is like, do I need to get an electrician involved to do that properly? Like I wouldn't, I can't do this myself, right? Yeah. So, so today Sense is a, it's a consumer product. You, you can buy it from our website or you can buy it from, from Amazon. Um, and and it, yes, it needs to be installed inside your electrical panel. It's, it's very easy to install it, the, the, these clamps that just clamp around the main wires. You don't have to take the wires off or anything. And then you plug it into a breaker in your panel. But So very, very easy to install. But because it's inside the panel, you should get an electrician to install it. Yeah, makes sense. Go- Especially for, for a consumer like me. Because <laughs> I am clueless when it comes to stuff like that. But, but our, our view is uh, over time, kind of the in- energy infrastructure itself needs to be such that it supports this. If you go look at you know, all these predictions about uh, the smart grid and smart home, this notion that the infrastructure itself needs to start to become intelligent and have processing is pretty pervasive and we believe it. It's actually analogous to where we were in in the uh, telecom world uh, 10 years ago, right? But 10 years ago, if you wanted a, a music player, you'd have to go buy a separate piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. Or if you want a navigation system, you buy a separate Garmin thing that goes in your car. Mm-hmm. But then over time, the infrastructure itself, the smartphone, uh, became this platform that did both phone calls and text messaging, so phone stuff, uh, but then also became a platform for all these kind of consumer-facing apps and services. There's no reason the same can't happen and won't happen in the energy world, whether the whether it's a utility meter that can start to do consumer-facing stuff like Sense or the electrical panel itself uh, starts to have processing and smarts built in. Uh, we think that those are both valid and likely to exist, and we are we are pretty intent on helping the industry along in that way. Where, where our role is data intelligence and the consumer-facing application, not in building the little uh, boxes that go in the electrical panel. Right. And one of the things that you mentioned was, um, you know, part of the consumer appeal is seeing if you left, you know, like the curl and iron on. So my wife is infamous for that. As soon as we leave the house, we're a couple miles down the road. She's like, Oh my God, I think I, I left the iron on. <laughs> and you're like, seriously? So we turn around, we go back and it's unplugged. But um, so is that something from with sense that like just remotely I could, you know, turn off that outlet? Yes. So, so you know, because we're starting from the sensing side, uh, we can see that you left on your curling iron. We can see you left on your oven. And it gives you the peace of mind that you can check and don't have to turn back around to check. Now, to control it, you actually need a, a either a smart curling iron or you need to p- plug it into ah, a smart plug. A smart outlet. Yep, got it. And, and look, we don't need to build those ourselves. I mean, you know, most of the IoT world has been focused on making smart curling irons and making smart plugs. 
Yeah. We're increasingly interfacing with those. Got it. Okay. So it is the case that that if you have Sense and a smart plug in your house, they should talk to each other and allow you to to do this even automatically over time. Yep. Makes sense. Okay. Now, the other thing that you did was, you know, you're building a piece of hardware. So what was that experience like? And what would you share with, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that are looking to build a, you know, a, a physical piece of hardware? Yeah. So uh, it is the Hardware's case. Hardware is hard from what I've heard. For me? <laughs> I always hard. say hardware is hard. Yeah, hardware is hard is the, is, is the obvious answer. Um, and, you know, I, it is true that most of us at Sense come from the software data consumer facing app world. Uh, and, and frankly, when we first started the company, we were working with some outside consultants to build some prototypes. Um, but then we hired uh, a great team of hardware, uh, a great hardware team here at Sense. So we have a, it's a fairly small part of the company. We've got about 45 people at the company and three of them are focused on, on hardware, but we have some really good hardware, um, uh, resources. I mean, they, and they work with external vendors to actually build things. But, that, but I think you know, at least one lesson is is you got to take it very seriously. So, so don't don't try to just wing it. You, you really got to find uh, people that understand it deeply from a design and and development perspective, and then from the manufacturing perspective. So, why do you keep building companies? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I, I mean, I think you know, for me personally. I, I like creating things. I like building things. And, and that, that doesn't partly means the products, but even more importantly, the, the companies and the teams around the companies. It's just very gratifying to go from, I mean, each of these cases, we've kind of gone from a vague notion, vague idea to a couple of people excited about it to, you know, continuously growing to, to, you know, big groups of people and even industries that are now focused on these things. So that's, mm -hmm. that's just a gratifying thing to do. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And obviously, there's a, a lot of belief and in, in sense in what you guys are up to because you just recently announced an $18 million Series B led by Schneider Electric. So was that more of a like a um, you know a, a, like a corporate investment deal like versus the traditional VC route? Yeah. So actually, a lot of our investment here at Sense now comes from corporate investors. So. Uh, uh, Actually, our previous round was even led by um, uh, Shell, the big, big oil company. And you might think, wow, that's weird that a, a big petroleum company would invest in a little startup in Cambridge that wants to save energy for people. Right. But, but they were very bought into, they understand that their world is changing and they've got to be involved in it. So they've, this has not been a cynical thing. It's been very genuine from them. And we're very plugged into to that company and, and very uh, happy working with Shell about how we help them understand what the future of energy will, will look like in our little piece of it. Another investor is called uh, Energy Impact Partners, and their their investors are the big utilities. So here in the Boston area, for example, uh, National Grid is one of their investors. Um, and again, these are big utilities who's who are looking for what the future of that industry looks like, and investing in companies like us to 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 find ways to to leverage and benefit from the things we're doing on the consumer side. So that, that, that's been previously. And now we just added uh, as our, our lead investor for this round, Schneider Electric. And it, it, we're super excited about it. It gets to the point I was just talking about that this this kind of functionality should be eventually embedded in the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You may not know, Schneider owns uh, uh, Square D, which is uh, one of the major uh, electrical panel makers in the US and they do that globally. So, you know, I can't talk yet about uh, 
things that we will do together, but you can imagine there's very great opportunities for, for working with them uh, to do pretty interesting things in this space. Very, very cool. I'm excited to see what the future holds ahead for uh, this technology and your company. Um, you know, there's, there's just so much going on in the home and it just makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you. All right, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing us, you know, the history of speech recognition. I was super excited to discuss that with you and get the full landscape. Uh, we could talk for hours about it, I'm sure, beyond that. And then obviously what you're up to with Sense and all your just general advice. Thanks so much for, for having me on the, on the broadcast. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.